Good morning. Uh, it, it is good to walk through those steps of worship to acknowledge that we're in God's presence and how that reminds us of our own sin, and we take the time to confess that. Over the weeks, you'll see the rest of those movements played out. Um, we're, we're continuing on in the season of the Gospels. We've got a couple more weeks before we enter Lent, which is a time of confession. But we've, we've looked at the, the book of Mark and his picture of the Messiah, how uh, Jesus very often was misunderstood. Remember the first eight chapters were, were the actions of Jesus and how the people uh, were perceiving them. Then chapters 8 to 10 were, were the disciples wrestling with what does actually Messiah mean. And, and today, Mark turns his attention in chapter 11, verses 1 to 33, to the coming of the king, how it looks like, what it looks like when the Messiah shows up on the scene. And it may seem a bit out of place uh, to cover this text on a Sunday that is not Palm Sunday, um, but I want to look at, once again, these rapid-fire stories that Mark puts together in a very intentional way uh, and to see the impact that they had on the people that were engaged in the stories those, that day, those days, and also to talk about what their impact should be on us. Now, I want you to remember, in, in chapters 8 to 10, there were these bookends, right? The, the, the blinds, blind men being healed, and they were, the disciples in the middle were coming to see what it meant to be the Messiah. And now, in chapter 11, they're approaching the city. So with uh, reading Mark 11, 1 to 33, will be Jennifer and Abigail Wright. Mark 11, verses 1 to 33. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig, le fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him saying it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you who have made, you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out to the city, 
or out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree with, withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone sees, says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared to the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Thanks, Jennifer and Abigail. What we see in the text are, are these stories that talk about the coming of the prophesied Messiah. Three stories laid out very intentionally. And then what follows is a bit of a fourth story with the reaction of the leaders of the Jews to these things that Jesus has done. We're going to look at each event uh, we're going to remind ourselves of these ideas and, and that they flow out of the Old Testament, predictions of the Messiah. And, and the details that Mark shares remind everybody, if you knew your Old Testament, these things were not surprising. But it does unsettle you if you're not ready. In the first story, the very common one about the triumphal entry, Mark makes sure you realize Jesus isn't just acting on a whim. And the Jewish religious leaders should have been able to draw from their knowledge of the prophets to realize that Zechariah tells of this entry into Jerusalem. About 550 years earlier, during the time of the exile, Zechariah the prophet had written words that would help the people identify the Messiah when he showed up in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus is very intentional in the text. As they're coming to the city, remember they're moving their way toward Jerusalem for the Passover. And he sends some of them ahead to find a colt tied there. And he says, tell them that the Lord, the owner, needs it. And, and it all happens just as Jesus said. And he sits on the donkey as he comes across the Mount of Olives and down into the city. Now, it just so happens that a year ago today, thanks to your generosity, Angela and I were doing this same journey. We were on the Mount of Olives looking down into the city. There's a picture that we've got that'll show. That this is up on top of the Mount of Olives. Obviously, this wasn't there when Jesus came across. But, but you come across this mount and you look down into the valley and you see Jerusalem 
over in front of you. And, and we would see that on this very day a year ago, this journey that he would come down the mountain riding this donkey with the, the, the branches, the palm branches, the symbol of Israel, and the, the coats and cloaks laid out on the ground for him to walk on. And then as you come up the other side into Jerusalem, there's these steps that we saw. There's another picture of that. These steps that, that actually Jesus would have ridden the donkey up to get into Jerusalem. Things that, an entry where he would have come. And it was really powerful for me to sit there and think of these people all along the way, spreading their cloaks on the road, saying, Hosanna, save us now, is what that means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. You see, this, these people, is, it's the result of all the first eight chapters, all that Jesus has been doing. This large crowd has realized this is the Messiah. And they're excited by his entry into Jerusalem. The king that was written about 550 years before was there, and they were all watching it happen. But it, this first story ends a little bit anticlimatically, right? He comes into town, he looks at everything, and then he heads back out to Bethany and spends the night because it's late. Now, the next morning, we encounter the second two stories, although one of them is bookended around the third. The, the second one is bookended around the third, right? Remember Mark did that with the blind men's healings to point out that in the middle, the disciples were opening their eyes to who the Messiah was. Well, I think the same thing happens here. There's a fig tree in verses 12 to 14, and again in verses 20 to 26, and Jesus comes to it hungry. He doesn't find any fruit, so he curses it, and it says it's not even the season for figs. That's a weird story. It's a weird thing to include. And the next morning as they head back into the city, they see that it's withered. Peter remembers. So you've got to think, what is up with this story that he's bookended around the cleansing of the temple? Well, if you're aware of the Old Testament, which the religious leaders were, you'd be able to make the connections because Micah and Hosea and a bunch of other people explained the tree. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this image of Israel as a tree, as a vine, as, as something that God has planted to bring forth fruit. That was the plan. In Hosea 9.10, God says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to the shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. So this idea of Israel as this tree that's supposed to bear fruit. And Jesus, on his way to the temple, sees this fig tree with lots of leaves on it. And he goes over to check it out because he's hungry, even though it says it's not the season for figs. Now, you've got to understand what that's, that's saying here. And I'm not a, a horticulturalist, but I, I can read books about it. And this is April. It's Passover time in, in Israel. And what happened was, in, in this area of Palestine, the figs would produce crops in late March and early April of these little tiny buds, little buds on the fig tree. And once those buds came out, then the leaves would come out. And so for, for the month of April, basically, until the end of April, 1st of May, you would have all these leaves, you'd have these little tiny buds that people would eat, the poor would eat them because they were, they were flavorful, there was good, and, and a, a lot of the peasant class during that time would, would eat specifically from these trees. It wasn't yet the time for figs because the, the, in, in, in the beginning of April, these would drop off and the, the or, and, excuse me, the beginning of May and into June, these would drop off and the figs would form. But the fact that there's no buds in April shows that this tree is not going to bear any fruit at all. It looks alive. It, it looks full because it's green and leafy and you would think you would find the buds there, but there weren't. And there was not going to be any fruit. 
The problem is that this tree, despite the, the, the image of life happening there, doesn't have any fruit. In Micah, the prophet writes, What misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of, cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. This image of, of going to the tree that's supposed to have something for you, and there's nothing there. And see, this story bookends the temple, <laughs> I think, because Mark wants us to see that the idea is Israel looks green and vibrant when you walk into the temple. There's lots of activity. There's things going on. But the fruit that Jesus is looking for isn't there. And that's why the middle story is important. Once again, if you're tracking with the Old Testament, it would not be surprised because Isaiah and Malachi talk about cleansing the temple. Jesus goes into this temple. He's not impressed with what he sees. He's in the Gentile court, which is really the only place that foreigners, non-Jews, can come to take part in worship and prayer, and it's a veritable shopping mall, a pre-COVID shopping mall, one that's very busy, right? It says he began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. You see, at one side of this court was a wall that went out of the city toward the Mount of Olives. And very often, olive vendors would take their, their olives, they would come through the temple court as a shortcut to get into the city. It become a shortcut. And, and what Jesus says is they're missing the point here. The point of the temple is that God is with us and that you can approach him in worship. You can engage in relationship with him there. And while things look big and beautiful and busy, the reality is that when you go looking for fruit, there's really nothing there. Some things have to change. In Malachi 3 he writes, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. See, the Messiah is going to clean things up. He's going to come. He's going to purify what's happening. And a big part of that is opening the doors to God for the entire world. Isaiah writes in Foreigners, who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and those who hold fast to my covenant, these will I bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's not a Jewish club. Jesus is coming and he's, he's breaking down the barriers for the entire world to be able to come to Yahweh. The Messiah has come for the whole world. He's upsetting the apple cart. In these first three stories, we see it playing out. And that leads to what we see in the last story. Those in power felt the challenge. Now, while a lot of people may have been unsure of Jesus' actions, the Pharisees knew that these were claims for power. And they felt the challenge. That's what makes it all come to a head. It's, it's a question of authority for them. In verse 27, the last half, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. 
By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? See, that's, this is where the rubber meets the road. The peasants are excited, something's happening, but the, the religious leaders realize this guy's making these steps to claim that he's the Messiah. By what authority? It's one thing to be a religious teacher. It's one thing to be somebody that the people like. But the things he's doing and the Old Testament connections that he's fulfilling are turning the power structures of the, of the day on their head. Some of you may have noticed over the past couple of weeks, uh, when you're watching from home, uh, they don't get it here. When you're watching from home, sometimes when we cut from a video or a full screen thing and I come back on, I'm upside down. Have you seen that? Where my head, I, I wish we could actually script that in it. We don't know really why it happens and they fix it quickly, but, but that's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's taking the whole picture of what everybody's thought and he's turning it upside down. He's challenging everything. When the Messiah shows up, it changes things. And in those moments, the fearful grasp for power. That's what they do. Luke says when the people were chanting that the religious leaders asked to quiet them, as, as he's coming down the mountain, Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, the religious leaders, Luke says, say, quiet the people, Jesus. And as they react in verse 18 to the chaos that Jesus causes in the temple, it says in verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. And they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And even in verse 32, answering the question about John the Baptist and his his baptism, there's fear there. If we say from men, they feared the people. For everyone held that John was really a prophet. You see, when the Messiah comes, it brings a loss of power to the ones who have it. And that's a fearful thing. Remember Mary singing the Magnificent in Luke 1. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. There's this shift. The powerful lose power. The weak are elevated. He has filled the hungry with good things, Mary sang, but he sent the rich away empty. You see, when Jesus challenges things, people afraid of losing their power make a grasp to hold on to it. And that grasp is going to lead him to the cross within a week. But even that doesn't stop the Messiah. What what I love about Jesus and what we see here is true authority is self-evident. I love this interaction with the leaders. By what authority do you do this and who gave it to you? And so he says, I'll tell you, but first answer me this. John the Baptist, was his baptism from God or was it just a good idea from a man? You see see what he did there? (laughs) He showed his authority by shifting from the answerer to becoming the one who actually asks the questions. And you have to forgive me for this, but as I'm, as I'm studying this, I'm thinking of that sitcom, The Office. Some of you may have seen The Office. Some of you may have not, but there's this kind of um, unself-aware boss named Michael, and there's this neurotic salesman named Dwight. And, and in this one episode, Dwight is telling Michael a knock-knock joke. And so, uh, so it starts knock-knock. That's what Dwight says. And Michael says, who's there? And Dwight says, the KGB. And just as Michael's starting to say, KGB who? Dwight slaps him in the face and says, we will ask the questions. And I just think that's exactly what Jesus did. That exact same thing. You know, they say, Jesus, we got a question for you. By what authority and who sent you? And he's like, I will ask the questions here. Tell me, who, who's John's baptism? Was it from God or was it from men? And, and they respond. They respond. They start thinking about it. But you know why? Because his authority is self-evident. He just has it. 
He asked him a question to say, how can you guys be in authority if you're afraid of the people? How can you even do that? They don't have the authority to judge his actions because they can't even act in a way that they want to because of fear of the people. Remember early on, Mark said in chapter 1, they, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. That authority was just there. If you need a better example, once COVID is over, come to a club night one night with a bunch of elementary kids in here and watch me try to get them to do something and then watch my wife try to get them to do something. I, I can try to quiet them down and get their attention and they just yak and talk and move. And Angela walks in and it's all, they all sit down. There's a self-evident authority. I don't know how she's got it. I'm glad she does because I would be toast if, if it was up to me. But that's what's happening here. Jesus walks into the situation and he claims authority because he has it. There's these four stories. The first three reminding people, this is what it looks like when the Messiah comes. And the last one showing how what he does messes with the people who are in control. Now, let's be honest here. We don't want to be caught off guard. We, don't, we, we, are, we want to make room for Jesus, right? That's our hope. That's our desire that when he comes, we have room for him. So let's, let's fast forward to today. And wrap up by looking at welcoming the true Messiah. How can we be sure that in our own lives we are welcoming the Messiah? Just as he came to them, he comes to us. He stakes his authoritative claim in the world and thus in our lives. And the question is, how are we going to respond? How will we welcome the Messiah? There's a, a verse from Psalm 95. It's quoted several times in the New Testament. In Hebrews 3.15 it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, it's referring back to when the children of Israel were, were planning to go into the promised land. And God said, okay, go take him. And they sent the spies in and the, and the people got scared and they didn't go. And they ended up wandering for 40 years. This, this thing that God was calling them to move, he was coming to them and helping them do something. And they, they refused to respond. And just as the Messiah came to Jerusalem in the text that we're reading, he comes to us every single day. We, uh, you, you need to understand that conversion happens in a point. There's a point where we give our lives to Jesus and we're his. But there's also this day-by-day -day process where we surrender. You see, when he comes to us, when he rides into our lives, really there's two options. We can grasp power or embrace surrender. It's the difference between those who follow Jesus and those who resisted. It's pretty clear from the scripture there's only room for one leader in our lives. The throne room of your life is a throne, not a love seat. It's not like the two of you sit there together and kind of figure out how things are going to go. When the Messiah shows up, he stakes a claim. He says, this is who I am, and he calls us to follow. We don't get to call the shots, right? I think that's the one recurring struggle of the spiritual journey, is this continual surrender to whatever God has for us instead of what we hope to get. Five years ago, just coming up on five years ago, I was surprised one Wednesday morning by a heart attack. I was 48 years old. You're not supposed to have a heart attack when you're 48. But everything was fine. I got to the hospital. I got the stents put in, and I was back into my normal life within a couple days. But <laughs> mentally, it shook me up a little bit. And, and talking with my doctor, he said, yeah, this is the time when men realize they're mortal. They realize that they're going to die. They realize that it could happen at any minute. And all of a sudden, I started questioning what I was doing and 
And was I investing my life well? And, and what, if, what, if it, what if it ended at 48 or 40? Am, am I willing to let God do what he wants to do? About that time, I was struck by, by a verse. I actually shared this in Barry's memorial. In, in John 21, 18 and 19, it's after Peter's being reinstated after the denial. And Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. And I started wrestling with that. You know, it has to do with our identity. And if, if, if we're all wrapped up in I am this, I am a pastor or I am a servant or I am a, even a husband, a wife, a parent, if that's who we are and, and we lose those abilities or we're forced to give them up, if the time comes when it's stripped away from us, then all of a sudden we have to realize, am I that or am I a follower? Am I willing to let people dress me and lead me where I don't want to go if that's what it means to follow Jesus? Am I going to grasp for control or am I going to embrace surrender? Well, how, how can I know if I'm doing that? Well, I'll get, I've, I'm, I've got that for you. I've got tell you, if, if you want to know if you're grasping for control or embracing surrender, you've got to see fear and control as danger signs, right? If you're driving the car of your life and you see lights on your dashboard that say fear and control, you know those warning lights, right? We've got a picture of that, right? Some of the warning lights. Yeah, you guys know those things. When you see that come up on your life and one of them says fear and control, you've got to realize you're grasping instead of embracing. We see them in the text. The Pharisees seek to take control. They're afraid of what Jesus is doing and how people are responding to him. And in the Luke version of this story, right, it starts right at the beginning at the the triumphal entry. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, if, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, even there, right at the very beginning, they're trying to take control. And it's a sign that they don't want to embrace surrender at all. And now, don't get me wrong, fear, fear is a good thing too. Don't, I'm not saying anytime you feel, feel fearful, you're off base. Sometimes fear is a, a warning sign like pain to say, you need to get into a different situation. Don't misunderstand me here. But if you find your life characterized by fear, And you're trying to address that by grasping for control. If those warning lights come up on your dash, you've got to realize that maybe you're not, you're holding on to something instead of embracing surrender to where God will lead you. When you're mad because you don't get your way (laughs) or when you're frustrated because things are changing in ways that you don't like. When you find yourself stressed and afraid by the situations that you're going to have to encounter, those are warning lights in your life that, that what you're doing is actually grasping for control and power instead of embracing surrender. It's an indicator that your identity is wrapped up in what you do and your own power. And the coming of the Messiah into into our lives with his self-evident authority, it unsettles us if that's what we're trying to hold on to. We think we have to earn this. We've got to control. We've got, this is who I am. This is what I do. And this is how, this is what God's, and And while that all may be true, if we can't let it go when the Messiah comes to us, it's way more about power. I love Luke 12, 32. Jesus says to the disciples, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid. 
because the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. If that could just settle into our hearts and minds, we don't have to worry. Say, say we lose control. Say somebody dresses us and takes us places we don't want to go. That doesn't mean we've lost the kingdom. May mean we've lost power and control in this situation, but it's okay because Jesus is the one who needs that anyway. Had the Pharisees realized that the coming of the Messiah was a gift and not a threat, they could have been set free from their own foolishness. They could have let go of the grasping for power and embraced the surrender that would actually lead to their healing. Okay, so fear and control are these warning lights that let you know you are grasping for control, but how can I know if I'm embracing surrender? Well, if you're embracing surrender, what you're going to see is that you're bearing fruit over time. See, the problem with Israel was a lack of fruit. Their religious practices weighed the people down. They excluded the needy. The fruit was not there. There was a lot of activity, but it was all about power and control. See, the truth is, we don't need to be afraid because the Messiah is giving us the kingdom. And if that's true, then we can rest in the fact that as we surrender, the Spirit will do his work in us, and fruit will come over time. Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll know them. Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you reflect on your lives over time, and you see love, joy, peace, and I'm not, I'm not saying perfect, but you see them increasing in your life, that means you're embracing surrender. The Spirit's bringing these things out in your life. And <laughs> one little caution there, too. You can seek to grasp and control and produce fruit. I'm going to make myself be joyful. I'm going to make myself be patient. That's just another form of grasping control. The true fruit of the Spirit comes as you surrender. It's the counterintuitive nature of following the misunderstood Messiah. As you let go of power and control, as you embrace surrender, the very things... As you surrender the very things that, that you're trying to control, they bring this love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Some of you know my friend Dave. Uh, Dave Weens. Dave doesn't live in hope anymore. And I asked for his permission to kind of tell a little bit of his story, which he's told to many of you already. I did it on Facebook. He hasn't messaged me back, so he, I'm going to tell it anyway. Sorry, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I told him to tell me no if I wasn't able to share it, and he never did, so I'm going to go ahead and share it. Anyway, those of you that know Dave know that he was born with some fingers that were extremely uh, malformed. They were larger, like triple the size of what they should be. And as a kid and as a teenager, it was a hard situation. And he eventually had surgery to kind of reform his hands in a way that, was, that he could utilize more. But when Dave tells the story of going through that process... And as you look at Dave's character, what you realize is Dave had a choice at that moment. He could, he could try to grasp and control whatever was going on there, or he could surrender to what had been given to him by God and see how God would use it. And, and over years, what I see and what I saw in Dave's life in the years, the 20 years that I've known him, is, is this fruit of the Spirit. Peace, love, joy, patience, how he's, he's constantly able to let go and not grasp he has a joy about him that, that's, that can be explained no other way than the presence of the Spirit in him. You guys know people like that, that, that their whole life they've embraced surrender to whatever God brought to them. They've received these things as gifts and let God work in them instead of fighting to make their life 
the way they wanted it to be. And that fruit just naturally comes and grows. See, when the Messiah shows up, we're confronted with a choice. We can grasp for power and live lives that are marked by fear and control. Or we can embrace surrender and live lives that over time bear the fruit of the Spirit. The question is, which will we choose? Not just today. I'm not talking about will you be a Christian or not be a Christian. We all make that decision to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. But tomorrow and the next day and the next day, when, when, when we encounter these things in life, are we going to grasp for power or are we going to embrace surrender in a way that cultivates the fruit of the Spirit in our life? Let's pray. God, just as you rode into Jerusalem and, and challenged everything and, and destabilized the status quo and made people fearful of losing power and fearful of uh, repercussions of what you were doing. You ride into our lives sometimes in ways that we don't expect, asking us for things that we don't really want to give up. And we're really good at, at disguising our reaction to you as sanctified and spiritual. We take control and power in very religious ways. And God, I just ask that you would expose that in our hearts. That as we begin to question what you're doing and you question us back, that we would realize you're the one in authority. And that we can surrender our lives to following you. And God, as we do that, as we do that in the middle of a pandemic, which is a a difficult time for sure, help us even to embrace this, to realize that you have led us here for a reason, that you've, you've... upset our our typical days and our schedules to show us things to lead us places to help us learn to surrender to your guidance each and every day give us the faithfulness to learn from that and god i I thank you that when you uh, open your door to us it's to a table it's not about control it's about communion and fellowship in jesus name amen grasping for power or embracing surrender Um, it's interesting Jesus said that to Peter, right? When you're old, people are going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And then it says he he spoke this to let Peter know the type of death by which he would glorify God. Now, if you remember our journey, like Peter's walking along this road from Capernaum to Jerusalem. A couple weeks ago, we, you know, he he challenged Jesus. He, He tried to grasp for power in Jesus' plans. And Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so Peter goes through this process that ends in his, his actual devastation, his denial, his brokenness. And even when he's reinstated, God says, it, you know, I'm going to take more, Peter, but your death is going to glorify me. And I, I love the last words we have from Peter. End of Second Peter, the last written words we have. He tells us, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. If Peter could go from that point where he's saying, no, that'll never happen to you, to the the place where he denied and was broken and ashamed and devastated, to hearing, life's going to get hard, Peter, but if you will follow me, your death will glorify God. And then the last words we hear, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He learned to trust through the difficulty and that's our, my prayer for all of you this week as we walk through this, as, as we're tempted to take power and, and run our lives, that we can embrace surrender and accept what God comes to us so that the Spirit begins to produce in us all those fruits that the world needs and that we want. Amen.